hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me just compose myself. <laughs> uh, by the way, you cut one of my fucking questions from that last uh, episode. My second, my second question. <laughs> and every time you do that. I'm just going to ask more questions the next time and I'm going to keep referring to them every five minutes for the remainder of the podcast to make it impossible for me. <laughs> to make to, uh, sure. yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. Off you go then. Hello and welcome to Football Unfocused, uh, the podcast in which two old school friends in their late 30s discuss in an ill-informed and rambling way the subjects of the day Mostly regarding football, but sometimes uh, straying off into other bullshit areas. Uh, it's presented by myself, Mark, and uh, my good friend, Matthew. Matthew, hello. Hello, hello. Oh, sorry, uh, Mark. Oh, sorry. Yeah, such an ass. Such an absolute ass. Now, that, that you can edit. You can edit. I'll, do, I'll do that bit again. Matthew, how are you? I'm I'm good. I'm good, Mark. How are you? Yeah, sorry. Yes, very well, thank you, Matthew. Yes. Yeah. I'm just a... trying to. You, you've moved your. You've moved your chair, so I can't watch the snooker from over your shoulder with the telly on. Yeah, and 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 we're actually. I am going to be distracted because we're in the dis- distressing scenario where Ronnie O'Sullivan, uh, the greatest human being ever to uh, stand by a <laughs> snooker table. Uh, is in grave danger of going out in the second round of the uh, World Snooker Championship. And, uh, you know, despite some of the um, high-level stuff we're going to be discussing today concerning the world of football, this is this is bigger news. He's 10-6 ten, he's ten down, Matt. It's best of 25. So so um, his, his opponent, uh, uh, McGill, only needs three more frames. Fuck. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about your focus. You've got the telly on with the sneaker. You've got your phone in front of you with the updates, and you're trying to do this podcast as well. Yeah, and I'm on a bit of a time limit today as well. Um, yeah, yeah, you've got uh, to shoot off in about ten minutes. Rest assured, I would never disrespect our uh, avid listeners. Um, no. You know, literally ones of them, um, <laughs> one, ones, ones of of, uh, of listeners by not giving my full focus to the podcast. <laughs> and obviously, Matthew, uh, this has been uh, a seismic week, even by the standards of uh, the way in which sort of modern news and sport moves and develops. This has been one hell of a week, and it's difficult to think of anything particularly new and original to add, uh, so I'm not going to bother. <laughs> 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 so we're done. <laughs> Oh, we wrapped up. That's it for the day. <laughs> I guess. I guess really, because I do. I mean, I, as you'd expect, I've got a lot that I could. I could say about um, a, anyone who's listening to this in the future. If anyone ever does listen to this, this is at the end of the week in which the um, the ill-conceived and short-lived, as it turned out, European Super League was um, proposed um, and then abolished in shame and acrimony. Um, Matt, as a uh, slightly less passionate observer, what were your thoughts on it looking in? Were you looking in with bafflement? What really uh, I found interesting, it was literally like three weeks ago within one of the podcasts that that we did. And you said the Euro, you know, I can't remember the context of the discussion, but you said when the European Super League happens and it will yeah, happen. It will happen, um, yeah. The you know, and then you went on to whatever point you were making. And um, when I said that at the time, 
did you just dismiss that as a lot of throwaway? Did you, did you even think about it? Did you think, oh, what's, what the fuck's he going on about there? Or, uh, or um, did you? I, I didn't. Well, I mean, I certainly wasn't expecting that to come to fruition within three weeks of you saying that. I thought, oh, yeah, maybe in the offing within, you know, the next decade or whatever. But then then the 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 speed so the years that it took to put together and then the speed with which it fell apart i mean it was just pr miscalculation it was so badly conveyed. well uh, yeah exactly yeah that is absolutely right it was shambolically um launched basically what's happened here is it's a plan that has been building and building in momentum but um by the, the sort of you know big powerful owners of the uh, most um, sort of supported and, and economically powerful clubs for a long period of time, long, long period of time, they've wanted this and they've used their leverage to, I would go as far as to say uh, blackmail UEFA over many, many years to implement reforms that favour them and, and um, um, safeguard their, their position of strength and power over European football for a long, long, long time. And UEFA have been definitely... You know the dog that is having their, their 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 tail wagged, but what's happened in the last year? What has made this um, suddenly be launched in such dramatic circumstances as it was last uh, last Sunday is the result of the pandemic. It's because um, Real Madrid and Barcelona, in particular, are in unimaginable levels of debt. They're in debt that some uh, sort of you know mid mid to low ranked European nations. Uh, would have as their, their their sort of national debt and be concerned about. You know, we're talking a billion pound for Barcelona, a billion pound. How can any institution be in a billion pound worth of debt? An institution that's got a, the largest um, um, stadium capacity in European football and one of the most supported clubs in the world. They're in that level of debt. Real Madrid, similarly, you know, they've spent a load of money redeveloping the Bernabeu this season. They're in debt, but they're in debt because of their own greed. And they're now making it everyone else's problem. We'll come into, we'll come later on into um, Florentino Perez, the boss of Real Madrid. But he, the audacity of that man, talking uh, this week, he's he's one of the few that hasn't actually had the the good grace to completely shy away from it. He's still fronting it out, completely brazen, talking like it will happen in some form at some stage, and um, pretending that he it's, it's for the good of the game and he, it was to save football, which is absolute bollocks. It's to save Real Madrid. You know, he, he he's one of these people. He's so fixated on his own self-interest that when he says football, he means Real Madrid because all he knows is Real Madrid. He's just completely one-eyed. But, you know, so so what's good for football is what's good for, for, for Real Madrid. Sorry, what's good for Real Madrid is what's good for football in his head. But this, this yeah, as you've implied, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. The momentum for this has been going on for a long, long time. Silvio Berlusconi in the late 90s um, tried to get a, um, a load of momentum going for this to create a breakaway European league. I don't know whether at that stage it was – it wouldn't have been um, the the form now. The thing that most people were, were, were offended by clearly was the lack of competition. This idea, completely alien concept to European football – uh, fans of a league being created not on merit but by sort of economic might, and then it being a closed shop that um, there'd be a, a, a certain amount of those clubs they wanted to get twenty or eighteen altogether, and that there'd be about fifteen of those that would be 
every single season in that league, no matter what they've done the year before. So it'd be no, it would be completely closed off. Not only would it be closed off to the teams from the major European leagues who had done well that season and warranted their place in it, but it would all, it was also completely cutting off uh, <laughs> all the other European nations. You know, forget the the you know Italy, France, Germany, um, Spain, and England. What about the you know scores of others who have all over the years produced European champions and you know high performing European clubs in in European competition? So it was an absolute outrage, and there are not many times where I have felt genuine shame to support uh, Liverpool Football Club. But I, I found this I found this last week really quite personally difficult because I've I'm I've been sickened by it like genuinely sickened to my core about it. It's made me feel actually physically unwell for for about two days because I was I just I was just staggered that these owners of the club that claim to they're very good at playing the PR game. They claim to understand and respect the passion of the supporters, the culture and the history, not just of the club, but of the city, the area, the the sort of noble working class roots that the the proud identity of the the you know the scousers the people of Liverpool, and to then on the other hand turn around with a with a proposal like this not even a proposal it was an announcement it wasn't put out to tender it wasn't they didn't speak to anybody there was no there was no research done they didn't canvas the supporters and go oh, we're thinking of doing this we think it will make a lorry load of money and we really good and mean we can buy elite players forever what do you think. And I know what the response would have been, but they but they just didn't do that because they, they know what the answer is going to be. But even going back to, you don't even have to go back as long as the um, the, the European Super League proposals in the in the late nineties. When you look at um, uh, the so about about seven or eight years ago, maybe a little bit longer, maybe as many as ten years ago, a lot of people have forgotten this now. There was a proposal for uh, a thir- called Game Thirty Nine. And that was the um, that was again a, 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 a prim, that was a Premier League thing, not a uh, European football thing, but it, it was going along the lines that we're now kind of at the end of, where the the powerful owners of Premier League clubs wanted to um, maximise the um, potential revenue from their growing support bases across the world by obviously there's 38 games in a Premier League season randomly stapling an additional match for every club at the end of that season and hosting that match at unnamed locations all over the world. You know, so it'd be like the United States, all over Asia, maybe even as far as Australia, somewhere like that. Um, and uh, Africa, I'd imagine as well, um, and Middle East. And that that was, a you know, kind of cast aside at the time. It's quite a bizarre but Spain since then have tried to do a similar thing about four years ago. They 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 actually thought they had a deal sorted and it got eventually got like beaten, I think, through the courts. But that would have been mental. I mean, how how would that work? A, a league system is such a um a kind of like a binary it, it is it is a specific number of games, you know, 20 teams all play each other home and away, and at the end of it, it's simple maths. You work that if you just bolted on a match, how do you decide who plays who? And it's just one extra game. And also, there's a chance that that game could end up being completely meaningless anyway, because most Premier League seasons, all right, you get the odd one, which is really close. Most Premier League seasons, like this one, for example, that we're currently in, the league champions are probably going to be 
you know, confirmed three or four weeks before the end of the season. The rel- the three teams that are relegated, you know, they're as good as down already. One is is actually already down, and and two others are, are likely to go down. So that would have been a nonsense. Uh, and so that was bollocks. But it was an insight into how these people are thinking. You can't apply any logic to it. You have to look at it and go, wow, what's the most mental thing that you could think of now that you could do, you know, to disrupt uh, the structure of European or, or Premier League football? And if you think of that now as a crazy idea, just put, I don't know, whatever, like, you know, uh, introduce a, a uh, 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 10-year-old boy. On, I actually heard, I'm ripping this off of, of another podcast. There's this mad <laughs> idea. Put, put a 10-year-old boy on the pitch and just get that 10-year-old boy to just run around, not, not taking part in the game, but just run around the pitch throughout the 90 minutes. And if he touches uh, a player, that player has to leave the pitch. <laughs> just to spice things up. So, so, so it's a test of that. You know, are the players smart enough to play a high-level match uh, at the same time as being aware of the location of a 10-year-old boy and making sure they don't come into any physical contact. And you think that now, you laugh, you laugh about it in that. In 10 years' time, who, who the fuck knows? <laughs> but, the, but this idea was mental. This Super League idea was mental. And uh, and it was offensive. And, but it shouldn't be hugely surprising because of who we're talking about here. Who are, who are these owners? And so many of them. You've got Florentino Perez, who is an egomaniac and a, a, a really uh, um, kind of ruthless, self-serving kind of venture capitalist type business tycoon. And then you've got a bunch of, about four of the clubs are under American ownership. And you look at the American sporting model, and yes, people, for some inexplicable reason, I mean, I personally wouldn't, if it was on the bottom of the garden, I'd draw the curtains, but people in this country seem to inexplicably have a love for the NFL. And but that NFL is is that is a closed shop. So they have a, a system where the same teams take part in it every year, and then you have a draft for all the players at the beginning of the year, and they say that they ensure fairness by the team that comes bottom the previous season gets the first dibs on the players for the next season. So I think, and that's when I, I believe I don't know I'm willing to be corrected on this, and frankly I don't care whether I'm right or wrong because I don't give a fuck about the sport. But I believe that when they said a draft, that's from, from the new intake of players every year. So the ones who have sort of come through the college system and stuff. So when you get first dibs, that means you get first dibs on them. But you still have contracted players to your club. Now, there was no proposal to introduce that system for transfers. But that would have been the natural conclusion of this. Because if you have the same clubs playing the same fixtures every single year, the only way you can ensure fairness is to ensure you're all on the same page in terms of uh, salaries, you'd have some sort of salary cap, and the the um, the recruitment of players is done in a kind of fair way. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're you're taking like an elite team. Say you're a club like um, um, Man City, and you're used to being top or second of the league every season and competing a high level European football, and then all of a sudden you you hit a bit of a wall and you can't stop finishing kind of mid-table in this European Super League. You've suddenly become a mediocre club. But yeah, it's a mediocre club at the highest possible level, but it's still mediocre. And that's not what they sort of define themselves on. That's not how they kind of sell themselves as a club. And there'd have been loads of them who'd have been in that situation. And I'm trying to have this conversation without being kind of using it as a a, a petty opportunity to kind of point score on some of the teams that had put themselves in this team. But And I know you love them, Matt. But the idea of Tottenham Hotspur being this was ludicrous. 
And I've heard, I've yeah. heard you said, oh, we're, we're the ninth richest club in the world, so it was inevitable we're going to be on there. Is that really, I was going to say, is that really what football's come to? Well, evidently, it is what football's come to. But Tottenham Hotspur haven't won the league since 1961, the domestic league since 1961. They've only won one trophy in the 21st century, which we're now 21 years into, and that was the League Cup, so the least important of all the trophies. They've actually got a, another final for that this weekend. They've never won the Champions League. Uh, they got they got close, unbelievably, two years ago, lost in the finals to Liverpool. <laughs> um, and they've rarely threatened the kind of top two or three in places in English football. They're in the Europa League this season. They're almost certain to be in the Europa League at best next season. What the fuck is going on when they think that they warrant a place in that table? But it's not really Tottenham's fault. That's why I didn't want to go down that road, because it's not really fair to blame Tottenham, because Tottenham are in a situation where four or five of their domestic rivals were going to put themselves forward to this, and they, they couldn't afford to risk being left behind. So they're followers. You could argue they should have had the, uh, the kind of courage to stand up against it and be the, be the ones to kind of oppose this, and they've definitely missed an opportunity there. I think they could have got a lot of credit for doing that. Um, but instead, they've followed the money, as Daniel Levy, I think, always does. Um, but nobody would have nobody would have believed Daniel Levy if he had said, "Oh yeah, we were offered, but we said no." <laughs> good, good, good point. Yeah, good, actually, that is a good point because you look at the. I mean, Tottenham have have come out this week awfully, haven't they? Because they've 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 got they most of the clubs got anger as a result of what they've done. Tottenham just got derision. Everyone was just like, "What the fuck are they mm-hmm. doing there?" Unbelievable, like incredible. And then they've also sat their manager, uh, which I think they did on Monday. There was even a suggestion, I don't know whether this is true, I doubt this is true, but there was even a suggestion it was because Mourinho himself opposed the Super League to such an extent that he refused to take training on Monday morning. I I doubt that's the case. I don't think Mourinho is good for a lot of things, but I don't think taking a kind of moral high ground stance is one of them. You know, that's not his his bag. That's not really his thing, is it? (laughs) But anyway, but they tried to sort of slip, sweep that under the carpet on the biggest news day. It's like the equivalent of... uh, of um, on the day of uh, the attacks on the World Trade Center, there was famously an, a Labour spin doctor who described that as a good day to bury bad news, and uh, which is an awful opportunistic way of looking at you know something that costs so many people their lives. And I, I reckon the sacking of Mourinho was uh, even though it was it was welcome news for a lot of Tottenham fans, uh, most Tottenham fans probably, uh, it just it smacked of that a little bit. So they've had a terrible week, but. But ultimately, even even you know, go, going aside from that match thirty nine, the reason I say it was inevitable as well. Look at the look at what the Premier League clubs. Forget the rest of Europe for a minute. Look at what they tried to do uh, uh, in the pandemic uh, period. It was I think it was only September October last year. This project, big picture, and I've mentioned that briefly a couple of times in passing on this on this podcast. That was an absolute abomination and a disgrace. And but it is it is on similar lines to what they've tried to do now. That was the top Premier League club saying, look, we know that everyone now is struggling financially. And we know that the, all the tiers below the Premier League, most of those clubs are on the verge of bankruptcy. Their revenue has fallen through the floor. And we're prepared to save them. We really care about football. We want to save them. Uh, but there's one, one small caveat to that. We will save them. We'll give them a guarantee. We'll give them a lump sum of money now, basically a payoff to shut up. Um, but in and we will give them a percentage of the TV revenue moving forward, a more proportional percentage. But in return, we want to tear up the most equitable distribution of wealth 
um, in terms of TV contract. They want to tear that up, create the, the, the top six, which were the same six as, as, as have shown themselves this week, so that those six would have a larger slice of the TV money um, proportion to what they claim they bring to the table. And uh, they would have the casting votes in all reform decision-making moving forward. And the Premier League itself would move from uh, 20 clubs to 18 clubs. So they'd have one season where they relegate more clubs. And the model of three up, three down would be switched from two up, two down. So they were moving very much towards a similar system whereby you're having fewer teams, the power is all at the very top, and you're limiting the opportunity for teams to be relegated from there because they want their business model to be based on absolute certainty. And But that is such a flawed concept because it takes away the uh, the whole uh, – any understanding or attempt to understand why people love it in the first place. Why, do, why does football exist? Why are people captivated by it? Even though it is essentially the same thing every season, it, domestically and across uh, the world – the same teams in the same competitions largely, there is that element of excitement and peril. Sometimes big clubs do get relegated. Sometimes uh, underdogs win a league, a cup, a Champions League. The, the president of UEFA, and UEFA is an organisation that, all right, it's, this is a rare week in that they've come out of this uh, kind of smelling of roses, looking like the good guys, but they are a morally bankrupt organisation, second only to FIFA in their shameful uh, conduct and history over a long period of time. And they have been the ones who've been, you know, pathetic in the way in which they've been rolling over to these big, um, increasingly powerful clubs for a long period of time. But uh, Seferin, the uh, UEFA president this week, has come up with some really incredibly strong words to the extent that you look at it and you go, how are you going to come back from this? You've, you know, the, the names that you've kind of called these owners and now you've, you've kind of got to work with them again. But the best point for me that he made was when he said, these clubs consider themselves the elite now. And he, even though he, in fact, had a dig about the ones, because there was three in there that have never even won the Champions League. Tottenham, Arsenal and Atletico Madrid, even though Atletico Madrid have been to about four or five finals and lost them all. But none of them have even won the Champions League. Uh, and he was like, but they regard themselves as the uh, as the elite now. And he said, if you go back um, to the 1980s, so we're going back less than uh, 40 years or four, you know 40 years and and less, um, the clubs that won the European Cup in that period of time, uh, we'll forget, we'll take Liverpool out of the equation for for the moment. But in that in that decade, Porto, PSV Eindhoven, Stal Bucharest, Nottingham Forest, Aston Villa, Hamburg. So yeah, none of those teams would be in the uh, European Super League as it as it stands now. Uh, they were all European champions during the nineteen eighties, and not a single one of them would be. Uh, not only would they not be in the actual Super League, the closed shop Super League uh, as it stands, as it was presented, but they wouldn't have an opportunity to get in there. They might get in for a season at the behest of these sort of super clubs and their ego, but uh, it would be on the basis of their domestic achievement over that previous season um, and uh, and only on that one season basis. They would They wouldn't be able to go up there and kind of, work their way up to the top of the table and sort of uh, retain their European Super League status, even if Real Madrid fell into a period of decline where they were finishing lower mid-table every year. If, say, take one of those clubs, Hamburg, were to get promoted into the European Super League, which is unlikely seeing as they're currently in the German second division, um, but if they were to, to, to achieve that, uh, they would... Uh, 
they would be there for a season. And even if they, I'm assuming under those plans, even if they were to win that Super League, the next, well, actually, maybe if they won it, they, they'd stay in it. But say they got to like the semi-final or they won 60% of their games, unless they go and win the German League again that, that year, they're out. And clubs like Stade Bucharest and PSV Eindhoven, those nations, Romania, Holland, uh, that they, they came from, Porto, Portugal, those are great footballing nations. They're not even been mentioned. The clubs from them are not even been mentioned. Now, I'd like to now add that I'm hoping the listeners, uh, the listener or the listeners <laughs> will have uh, seamlessly uh, just listened to those last few sentences and not noticed uh, any any change in uh, pitch or timbre of my voice. But what actually happened is around the time I was listing the clubs that won the European Cup in the 1980s, uh, my internet connection failed. And uh, Matt and I had to, couldn't get it fixed, or I couldn't get it fixed. So we've had like a five-hour gap, uh, during which time I've had five pints. And uh, <laughs> I feel... I feel absolutely fine. You know, I think it's testament to my professionalism and dedication to the subject of football that I've been out uh, and come back and continue to podcast because I am nothing, Matt, <laughs> if not a pro. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The one thing, um, I mean, obviously you've spoken about all the things that really made you, you know, your your, your guts churn, apart from the five pints, is, you have know... I, I've, done, I've done that, have I? I covered the stuff that pissed me yeah, off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but... For me, it was it was for just the sheer audacity of of so many individuals who just jumped on the bandwagon and sort of said, "This is a this is a disgrace, this is appalling," and as you sort of said, you know, have come out sort of, you know, on on the right side of things, and and I and I think of all the, you know, <clears throat> I think of some of the pundits as well that were sort of you know chiming in. Saying now, you know, this is football is getting robbed. You know, they're stealing it from us, from the fans, and and I just think of all these people. Most of them are former players, and and I just thought, well, none of you probably ever turned down a pay rise. None of you sort of thought, hang no, on a minute, hang on a minute, hold on a minute. No, one, one sec, one sec. So none of them said, oh, you know, somebody's going to have to pay for this. Ultimately, if I'm getting paid more and more and more. This is going to have to come from somewhere, and and the one, but the one person I really sort of thought felt I felt summed it up was I just watched a clip of um, John Barnes earlier, and I don't yeah. know who he was speaking to. I don't know if it was BBC Breakfast just, yesterday. It was BBC, it was a, yeah, a, a, and it, excellent interview. Yeah, and he just said the fans haven't won. He said this was basically just a power struggle between yeah. some, you know, some Five very or six billionaires. Yeah, a load yeah. of billionaires. Uh, versus uh, the Premier League, Sky Sports, FIFA and UEFA. And all that's happened is that, you know, those guys have won. The fans haven't got the game back. The teams in the You're lowest right. leagues haven't aren't going to benefit. No, yeah, absolutely. No, but all, all that's happened is an extreme version of, like, uh, self-interested reform has been mitigated. You're absolutely right. We're still in the yeah, same yeah. position as we were uh, a week ago. Fans really, fans have been getting a raw deal for such a long time. I've spoken in previous podcasts about, I look at everything from the point of view of a match attending fan. I frankly don't, I mean, I, I sympathize, but I don't give a huge amount of fucks about people who uh, only watch football on the telly. Um, because, 
Well, because anyone could just watch it on TV. I watch fucking Line of Duty. It doesn't mean I have right a right to uh, start dictating their casting uh, policy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but I look at everything from the point of view of the the people who are devoted to that club and spend large amounts of their lives and their money um, following that club. And for 25, 30 years now, those people have been getting the rawest of raw deals. They are given absolutely no respect. They are the people without which the Premier League or the Champions League, the value of that product would be zero. Because if those stadiums weren't full, if it didn't sound great through the high-tech home cinema systems or in the pubs, if the atmosphere was as sanitised as it has been in the last year with the empty crowds because of COVID, then that the, the proposition, the ability for UEFA or the Premier League to sell their product worldwide to broadcasters would not exist. And yet those people are mugged off time and time again. Kick-off times, fixture dates, outrageous ticket prices, the mer- unaffordable merchandise – one of the things that doesn't get mentioned anywhere near as often as it should do is that, so imagine you are a, um, a mother or father of um, a couple of, you know, boys or girls, it doesn't matter, um, uh, young kids who have developed, a, a, you know, a, a, a bit of an obsession with football and they're, they're mad about it and they, they spend a lot of time kicking the ball around. They're mad about a particular club. It doesn't matter what club because they're all exactly the fucking same when it comes to this. And they want the gear. So they want to be running around in the latest kit. They want their favourite player's name on the back. Now, in the old days, all the time I was growing up, a football club would have a uh, a new kit and that would come out every two years. So you knew that at worst, you would have to invest in the, if you want the full kit, which a lot of kids do. I know that obviously any adult who wears a full kit is a complete wanker. But uh, if it, it, kids love the whole thing, don't they? Because they want to, like, when I was a kid, I just wanted to look like John Barnes or Ian Rush running around, the, the, you know, the garden. And you're talking, what, 12, 12, 14 quid for a pair of socks, 25 quid for a pair of shorts, 40, 50 quid for the shirt wasn't obviously that much in the uh, uh, late 80s early early to mid 90s but that's kind of that's kind of what we're looking at now that became it just seamlessly slipped into every year so every single year they bring out a new kit now and that that happened gradually it was so cynical so it went from home kit was only changed every two years, but the away kit started switching. So, oh, you get a new one in them every year. So they start being able to flog that. And then it all started changing. And now most clubs have got three kits, home away and then some spurious third kit that they don't even fucking need, but they claim they need in case there's a, you know, a, a club that's got such a bizarre combination of kit colours that <laughs> neither their neither their first uh, choice kit or their away kit would would be able to to um, step onto that pitch and the referee be able to contemplate what the what the fuck was going on. So so parents imagine football is a working class sport and that's a point that's been made many many times this week. And no matter how much they like to move away from that, it, at core it is a working class sport. The majority of the people who support it are work from working class backgrounds or from working class families. At least started out working class. It is a sport that came from. The Industrial Revolution from people, football clubs were all built from uh, industries around mill towns and industrial towns, towns that were producing labour. 
and it was the it was the entertainment of the weekend at the end of a hard working week for the Victorian era people. And those, if you're a mother or a father of a couple of young kids and you're you're not earning a huge amount of money and it's tough enough to keep bread on the table, and then every fucking year now you've got the pressure of three football kits being released by the football club who claims to give a shit about you but doesn't. Every year I, get, I respond to a Liverpool consumer survey about uh, where, what I think about their latest rebrand bullshit or their their their, 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 their they use this um, nauseating um, marketing phrase uh, we are Liverpool this means more. Now that couldn't have, that that couldn't sound more ridiculous at the end of the week that has just occurred. This means more. What's, what does that actually fucking mean? And just one more point, which is really just going back to the fundamentals. That I think you, you might have made this point at the very beginning. These are billionaires, right? All of them. They're either personally billionaires or they are part of a consortium of billionaires. They've got access to the very best of everything, including PR. The Premier League clubs hired uh, the the same PR firm that got Boris Johnson through the 2019 uh, general election, right? And I guess what's been quite nice is it goes to show that even the scummiest PR firm in the world, when push comes to shove, if you give them something fucking awful and unforgivable and indefensible to sell, they can't do it because it's <laughs> shit. And the PR... We, you know, people are much more intelligent than they're giving credit for, and they won't be sold a, a dud by some bullshit patronising PR spin that tells them that, uh, you know, what what they can see right in front of their nose and knows to be bad is a good thing. And it's this week has been a victory for sort of decency and democracy over uh, cynical PR and the dominance of. Uh, you know, venture capitalists at the extreme end. And that's a good thing. And I'm not saying it, it, football is still in the same position it was a week ago. It still has lots of challenges. It still has lots of things that need changing. But I do feel that it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to ever raise this again and to ever go down this road again. And for that, we should all be grateful. Mm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I don't want to, um, I know you're, you're kind of, halfway through a session at the moment so uh <laughs> i mean halfway through i'd say i'm at the end of it matt uh yes but, but yeah you're right we've kept our, our audience for long enough i would just like to say one thing uh before we finish on a slightly serious note i would just like to um for i won't i won't go in uh hugely to the personal reasons i want to say this but i would like for anyone who ever listens to this i would like to devote and dedicate uh this uh particular episode of the podcast to alice brennan who is a fantastic woman and will be sadly missed by um, and never forgotten by not just me, but all the um, all her family who um, will always love her and cherish her very, very much. So I would like to devote this episode of the podcast to her. 